Hey, I'm Erin Bridgman, a money mindset and management coach for the creative entrepreneur. I'm the girl behind the Wealthy Woman Movement that's reaching thousands and expanding each and every month. And I'm so glad you've decided to join this community too. Welcome to the Wealthy Woman Podcast for creative female entrepreneurs looking to get strategic with their money. I believe that wealthy women will change the world. And in this podcast, we include money-related mindset and management tips and practical business advice you can apply right away. No fluff here. It's time to take action. Let me shoot it to you straight. Talking about money is like talking about sex. It's vulnerable and uncomfortable, but so necessary. And that's why I've created a judgment-free zone where women like you can trade the shame and money skeletons in your closet with empowerment and confidence that helps you master your money. I'm both the creative and the nerd, the no bullshit friend and your hype girl. And I'm excited to be your guide on your money journey. All your dreams are tied to money. So it's time to get that money working for you so you can make your dreams a reality together. Your business should be the catalyst to living your dream life. So don't let your money be the obstacle. Grab your notebook and your favorite drink and let's dive in. Hello, wealthy women, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we have Laylee on the show. Laylee is an educator, speaker, and conference host with a heart for serving clients and fellow entrepreneurs through her coaching work as the host of So Here's the Thing podcast and as the founder of the Creative Educator Academy. She believes in leading with heartfelt encouragement and honest guidance. As a longtime entrepreneur, she's not afraid to dig into tough topics or transparently share her own experiences, the good and the bad. Laylee is passionate about her goal to equip you and your ability to make a difference, create impact, and to build a life you love. I love it. I love it. I love it, Laylee. I'm so excited to have you on the show talking today about building your speaking education career. Welcome. Thank you, friend. I'm so excited to be here. So I got the privilege of meeting Laylee. I have heard about Laylee and I'm like, I have to know her. I want to know her. And our friend, Laura, who's so dear to both of us, she's like, you guys have to meet. So I got to go to her first ever conference in January, which was freaking phenomenal. If you are a creative entrepreneur who wants to build into education, who has been in business for a while and you want to meet colleagues, this is the conference to be at. We're going to give you the link so that you can get on the wait list or whatnot. But Laylee is the shit, basically. And I'm so honored she's on the show. Laylee, before we get into our topic, will you just share a little bit about you, who you are outside of business? Yeah, absolutely. I love that we're kicking off with outside of business because I feel like no one, no one ever asks me that on a podcast. People are humans and like, we want to know you, you know what I mean? Yeah, I love this. This is exciting. So I live in Dallas with my lovely husband and our two cats. I love dance. I was a full-time dance teacher before I was an entrepreneur, although that was kind of entrepreneurial as well. So I guess it counts, but that is my passion. And, you know, working with women just is something that was inherently in that. So that's become my hobby now. So I get to go back and teach dance for fun. We have a slow, quiet life here in, in the suburb of Dallas and couldn't love it more. Your background is so like aesthetically pleasing too. Do you love to decorate? Thanks. I do not love to decorate. It's such oh, a struggle done, for me. You've done a great job. I like the plants. I like the shelves. Love it. 
Thank you so uh, much. It's all sentimental stuff. I feel like my decorative style is like sentiment. Everything yeah. is from a student or a conference. The books, half of them are people I know wrote them. So it's just all the things. My goodness. So cool. Laylee, will you give us a quick recap of your journey? I know you've been in entrepreneurship a long time and you're a leader in the industry, speaking on lots of big stages, doing really cool stuff. What's it been like? Yeah. I mean, it's had a lot of twists and turns, but it's been a very fluid journey. I'm really lucky in that way. All of my pivots weren't really hard pivots. They were just kind of natural progressions. As I mentioned, I was a dance teacher and I loved doing photography as a hobby. And then photography became my business. And of course, when your business is photography, but your real business is teaching, they tend to combine. And so we started teaching photographers and teaching business owners. And then that kind of evolved into speaking and taking stages. And then people started asking me like, Hey, how are you doing this? And I wanted to help them create that impact too, and continue that ripple effect. And so I started helping people get into education in the creative industry. It's pretty cyclical, like a big circle of from teacher to photographer, to entrepreneur, to teacher and speaker. My journey has been very fluid to me. When did you start in photography? I started my business 10 years ago. So it's a decade in entrepreneurship. I mean, it was a hobby for years before I ever like made it a business, but yeah. So we started like the same time because I started as a photographer back in 2012. Yeah. Yeah. That's around this. Yep. That's so fun. Well, I'm excited for us to be able to dig into the topic. You know, for many of us, there is like a shelf life as being a wedding photographer, which I was aware of, right? Like my evenings and weekend, you know, and I love it. Sometimes I try to convince Brent, what if we just did one wedding a year? Just like it's a date, like it's a date day, but we get paid for it. Wouldn't that be fun? He's not down for that, but I still love photography. You know, there is this evolution where we're going to tweak. And obviously mine has been similar as I was done with photography. I went into education and then also into real estate investing. But I know that so many listeners probably have that thought in their mind. Okay, what's next? Or like, I do want to get into education. I have learned something that I want to teach. So can you zone in just a little bit on that? And then I want to spend a lot of time about the speaking stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, I just want to be clear. This is kind of my disclaimer I always give, even though my whole life and job and career revolves around helping people become really great educators. I don't believe that it is the necessary next step. And I think that a lot of people feel that way because they do struggle with that shelf life, right? They're like, my body can only take so much. I'm just going to get into teaching. But if you go into it that way, it's probably not best for you. Um, so I did want to put that disclaimer out there because yes, I don't want I anyone who's listening. You, Lately. Yeah, absolutely. I just think you know, there's so many other avenues you could take. This is not the only way, but if this is something you're passionate about, I mean, there's a lot of great first steps you can take and there's a lot of like process you can go through. But the number one thing I always advise people to do is to take some time to reflect on what it is they want to teach. I love that you said maybe they've learned something specific that they want to be able to give back and teach their community. So what it is you want to teach and then also taking some time to discover and do some like self-discovery on what kind of education do I want to offer? Like we're going to be talking more about speaking, but not everybody wants to be on stages. Although spoiler alert, like everyone's going to have to speak at some point if they're going to want to teach. It's just part of it is communication, but maybe that platform is different for them. Maybe they're more introverted. Maybe they're somebody that wants to work from home the whole time. So just taking some time to think about the what and the how you want to deliver 
whatever that education is. So good. And I love zoning in on what did you learn? Like, what do you have to offer the world? And I also think it's really important. Like, I thank you for your disclaimer because I do feel I've learned to be like, screw the industry, what the industry tells you to do or all these things. Like everyone is there on their own path. And so even if you see a ton of people becoming educators, I think you really have to have a heart for this. Yeah. Like if you're going to do it right, if you're going to really invest in people's lives, in their businesses and help them, like it's a helping field. You have to feel called to that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. We think about how we started maybe our first entrepreneurship steps. And for me, it was dance. And then after dance and choreography, it was photography. And those are all passion-based, like it's an art form, right? It would be insane for me to say getting into education should not be passion-based. You should have a reason for wanting to do it beyond scaling or avoiding the work that you don't want to do in a different industry. Yeah. So as you became an educator, as you sort of evolved out of photography into becoming an educator, you started taking pretty big stages, which in turn, probably was top of your sales funnel, right? Your awareness, people Mm -hmm. started to know about you and then hire you as a coach and into your programs. I want to talk about best practices now for the current, because I know it's ever changing. What was your journey like? Like, how did you go from, I'm a photographer to I'm speaking on stages? Like, what was your particular journey? And then I'd love to get into specifics for us to think about what could we do right now? That's a great question. So for me in particular, and I don't think my journey was unique at all. Like I think anybody could find themselves in this position, but I did have the benefit. And I always like to share this because I think it's important to acknowledge when you have any type of privilege or prior experience that helps you. I mean, I was a teacher for years. And so I did have like learned skills that were helping to set me apart from other people who are pitching and applying to speak places. But my first speaking opportunity in the creative industry was an invitation to speak in a virtual summit. And it was unpaid, just like a fun way to get my face out there and get my information out there. And it was a blast and I loved it. And from there, I was like, okay, this was a really great experience. And like you said, it was definitely top of the funnel. Like people were coming in that would have never found me otherwise. And I was excited about that. And so I started really researching, like, where can I pitch? Where can I apply? And how can I get on more stages? A lot of the information that's out there for the creative industry and speaking is like not the best. And so that was hard to sift through, but I just kind of kicked it old school and I applied like I would apply for a job and I just kept pushing out there and I heard a lot of no's and then I started hearing yeses. And so that was a quick summary of the journey for me. I think you asked about first steps that people could take. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So you got on a virtual summit. How long for you were you pitching and hearing no's before you got on your first big stage? We'll say maybe like a year. It wasn't short. (laughs) I think that's so important to highlight because, you know, entrepreneurship is a marathon, it's not a sprint. And you will have to be so comfortable hearing no's and just pick yourself up and keep going and don't make it mean anything about you. You know, maybe your topic was just amazing and they want you for a different series that's in six months, but you heard a no now, you know, I was a door-to-door bookseller. I don't know if you know that, but I sold books door-to-door in college. And I just want to like highlight this moment because I think when you pitch and I've been hearing those, like as I pitch, Mm -hmm. I'm like, I, you know, it's bummer, but keep going. And so I was door-to-door bookseller and I heard so many no's, I mean, doors slamming in my face all day. 
And I remember people would be like coming back like every Sunday we'd meet up and then people would be like, I didn't make any money or I had zero days. And I realized it was because they were literally sitting on the curb, like not knocking on doors. And in my little naive, like hardworking, like rule following, it never occurred to me I could sit on the curb all day. You know, I didn't. I was like, people are going to the movies. I didn't even think about that option, <laughs> you know, and I did really well. And it's not because I'm ultra talented. It's because I just knocked on the doors. Yeah. And so I just want to highlight, like, you heard a lot of no's as you were pitching, right? And I'm yeah. sure the people that you work with hear a lot of no's. Yeah. <laughs> And it just helps refine your pitching, right? It helps you, at least you're getting like, hey, they saw your name. You know, they're aware of you. So how did you go through, I'm hearing all of these no's and I'm going to keep going in a whole year of like pitching and not getting to that stage. Yeah. I mean, you know, and now you guys who are listening are going to know I'm a pretty honest person. It really hurts at the beginning it hurts really badly. It stings. And it would be a lie to say otherwise, especially because you're usually really excited in the beginning of anything. You're like pumps to get in front of people and help share your message. And you know, in your heart, like I have something that's going to help people. And all I want to do is get on that stage and help them. Um, and when you have that kind of mentality behind the application, it can feel very personal and very hurtful when you just get that form response. that's like, Hey, thanks so much for applying, but no. And honestly, the best advice I can give. And the thing that I did was I took some time between each no to really reflect on one, was it my best pitch? Can I go back? Can I look at it? See if I did something that I feel could have been done better and really try to like take the emotion out of that review of my own work. And then if I was like, okay, no, this was a pretty solid pitch. Then I would just try to remind myself, like not every person can get selected for every stage. I do think that my background in more competitive fields like dance really helped because anytime you're doing something with a limited number of people, you're going to grow up hearing no. And so I do think that helped a lot, but I am a sensitive person too. So I was like, you know, that sucks. Like it's hard to hear no, but yeah, just doing some self-reflection, seeing if it's your best work that you could put out there. And then after that, just keep going. You've just got to understand, like come at it with the mindset of I'm going to apply until I hear a yes. Hmm. And if you don't hear a yes, after like you've put in your time, I always say like, find help, like get a coach, hire somebody to do an audit or do whatever you need to do. But there is a certain point where you're just going to have to hear the no before you hear the yes. Yeah. That's so good. And I know that you work with people and helping them to develop their speaking careers. So can you give us some insight into some of the juicy strategy and things that you do to help people. I'm leaning in. I'm ready to hear what your thoughts are. And I know others listening. So what are some of your strategies and advice for people who are working on developing their speaking career? Oh my gosh. I have so much I could say. Um, The first thing that I'd say is just one, you want to make sure that whatever it is that you're pitching is really clear and concise and it makes sense for what you're pitching it to. So often the people that I work with, and even myself back when I was first starting on this path, I would 
think of the event that I wanted to be at. And then I would just pitch whatever I was like, this is my area of expertise. And sometimes those things didn't align, but I just didn't even think about that. I was like, I just want to go to this event and I want to speak at this event. In my mind, it's a good fit. But I think one thing that's made a huge difference for my clients is what part of this is a good fit for their audience? Is it just that you would be in the audience? Because that doesn't really always translate. So alignment of topic, experience level, event, event attendees, their needs, like are all of those things in place? And how are you communicating that clearly and concisely and honestly convincingly to the people who are going through hundreds of pitches? Yeah, that's huge. That's so good. So that was like number one. Uh, okay. Number one, make your pitch relevant to the conference, to the attendees. Yes. The second thing I would say is, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about, but just honestly not giving up and not stopping. So even if it's the same event, you know, all my students, I love working with people on this stuff, but it can be hard to coach speakers and to work with speakers who are in the application processes because they have to understand that like, even if we're doing our best work, you might not get accepted. That's kind of hard as a coach. I mean, when I coach on business strategy and I coach on, you know, I coach photographers or course creators or mentors or coaches, I can pretty much guarantee a win. With speaking, I can guarantee a win in some way, but I can't guarantee that you'll get the stage you want at the event that you want when you want it. There are just way too many factors. So I think just being willing to like, I'm not going to stop applying until I get the yes, or I'm going to be like, I'm going to set a number. I'll apply for three or four years in a row. And then if it's a no, I'm moving on. Yeah. Good. Love that. So second one, keep going till you get the yes or set a specific goal or like number that you're going to get to before you give up. Yeah. And then if we're going to dive into like the real juicy, like yeah, the real juicy lately. Let's talk about the money of it all. So speaking can be fun. And if it's something that you love, then it's fun. But we're not just doing it for fun. Like we're doing it for a purpose. Usually that purpose is is hopefully rooted in helping other people. But at the end of the day, girls got to eat. Like I have bills to pay. So how is this benefiting me? And am I prepared in advance? Am I prepared to get the yes? And then am I prepared to negotiate what that yes looks like for me in order to make it a yes on both sides? And sometimes you can be prepared for that in the beginning before you ever apply, but sometimes you're applying blind because not every event host is going to share compensation or if you're able to pitch on their stage or, you know, they're not going to share all of those details before they get their application. Some will, but some won't. And so just the strategy behind what makes this worth it to me And that varies so much person to person, but that is something that definitely needs to be considered no matter who you are. You've got to figure out like what makes it worth it to me to actually show up and do my best work. Mm, I love that. When somebody is working on crafting their pitches, let's say I'm coming to you or whatever. Do you feel like it's important to have multiple different like standard pitches or are you teaching people how to create custom pitches based on each conference, each event type of thing? So I actually kind of teach a hybrid of this in the past. I've heard a lot of people say like have two or three 
two or three signature talks. And I still do like, I have signature talks that are listed on my speaking site, you know, on my page so that when people are seeking that out, they can find me, they can see what I, what I've done in the past and they can see that these are topics that I love, but I do have clients come in and be like, Hey, I really want to go to this event. And I don't think any of my signature talks are like a good enough pitch for this event. Like, or I know for a fact that this event has a speaker that's already doing my signature talk, but I still want to go. So can we craft something in my area of expertise? That's a more appealing topic for them to be able to choose from. And so my answer is, it's kind of a hybrid for me and from the way that I teach, but I've been taught the signature talk way, probably more than anything else. Mm, Love that. Can you give us like a little inside scoop? Because I know you look at speaking applications and you, you've been involved probably on panels for other conferences and like, what's the process like? So, you know, many of us are like, okay, we're literally, we know our niche, hopefully we're not just pitching everywhere. Cause then, then you're going to hear really a lot of no's. So I would feel like it's really important to figure out like the right events to be pitching, which you talked about. Um, what's it behind the curtain? Like, what's it like, what, what's going on for most people as they're trying to figure out who they're going to bring on? I love this question. I have a lot to say. So I will say to preface this, I do speaker selection a little bit differently for my own events than I have for other events. I've been lucky enough to be brought in to help with speaker selection for different levels of events too. So I've done corporate world and universities, and then I've done more creative stuff. I've done small retreats and I've done larger conferences. So kind of the commonalities that I see, the first of which is that depending on the size, I'll use my own conference as an example, just because I don't mind being as open as I can. For me, as a creative entrepreneur and as somebody who is hosting an event for my peers, which happens a lot, all creative conferences are hosted usually by a fellow creative. I didn't feel comfortable making the final say for my entire speaker lineup. And so I put together a panel. There are five of us and we've had to meet several times, but we'll and we will have to meet again, but we had almost a hundred applicants. So we do like a first run where we literally just go topic. I do this thing where I put it all in a spreadsheet and I don't even look at the names first. First, we look at the topic and we eliminate based off of topic, which is usually pretty easy because this is the inside scoop. A lot of people are pitching really poorly. And I don't say that to be mean. I just say it because I think it's something to think about as you're creating applications. If you're interested in doing that, there's a lot of bad pitches out there. What do you Um, mean bad pitches based on topic? Is that what you mean? Yeah, honestly, it's for me, it's like based off of the topic and the way that you explain it. So for example, in the creative educator conference application, the question was, what topics would you like to teach to our audience? Use this time to share any and all details that will help us so that we can decide. And so it's like a long form, whatever. A bad pitch to me is a topic title and no explanation. A bad pitch to me is a topic that has no relevancy at all to our audience. A bad pitch to me is writing as though you're writing to me if we're friends, because it's not just me reading it. It's a full panel. So half the people on my panel, I've never met you. Probably most of them have never met you. And they're not going to want to hear like, hey, girl, I'll talk about whatever you want. Yeah, you, you know, I got you like that's not. Yeah. Not ideal. And these are all like real examples. So if you applied and you're listening to this, like no shade, I love you. We've got some work to do. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. So first round for you, you've got a panel, which is helpful to know. Like a lot of times people who, you know, are running these are your peers, but they're, they're taking in other people. So there's Mm -hmm. probably like, you know, multiple eyes, there's no bias, that kind of thing. And then you first and look at topic and you don't even Mm -hmm. look at the name. And I think that's goes back to find topics that are relevant to the people in the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, at the end of the day, like when I'm thinking about an event and, and bringing in the right attendees to the event, attendees get excited about certain speakers, but I think they more want to know what they're going to be learning. I think that's how I decide what I want to attend. Right. Absolutely. So then what's like, keep going. What's, what's next? So we go through the topic. That's kind of the first round. And then we categorize, like if there's multiple, multiple topics that are like good, but they're in the same category. And then we'll start doing the deep dive. So I look at, I look at everything. This is like the true, this is the true, true. This is stuff I haven't even shared on my own podcast. So this is is the truth. (laughs) I know. I do a deep dive into the person. I want to look at the communities they're a part of. I want to look at their speaking experience. Of course, this part is this next thing I'm going to say is like very standard, but I want to look at like them speaking. I want to hear them speak. So I'm going to go like if they've provided examples, I'll find them. If they don't have examples, I'll go onto their social media and I'll try to find videos of them like talking, whether it's just talking head to like an Instagram story. It doesn't matter. I'm still going to watch it. And while I'm there, I'm also taking note of their character. This is the juicy stuff. This is the real of it. Like I need to make sure that my speakers are in alignment with my ethics, my morals, my values, and those of my business. And those things are extremely important to me as a host because my attendees are usually in the same camp of having high ethics, high values, high morals, and having, you know, that they want their educators and their leaders and the people that they're learning from to also share those. So, I mean, I will say, I probably shouldn't say it. I'm going to say it. I don't care. I have, ter- I have literally had a maybe or a yes turn into a no based off of the way that they behave on the internet. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you say that. Yeah. So. You as a host of a conference are extending a massive honor to the people that you choose to come on to the stage. And as the speakers of that event, they are an extension of you. And that's, you know, that's a big responsibility. And you want to make sure that the people that are taking that have good character. And I mean, if we're not showing up well online, which is a very public way to show up, you, you know, okay, that's, I feel like that's really great. Thank you. So yeah, you're welcome. I mean, I don't say that to make anybody feel like they can't share their opinions or their things online. I believe in that. I think that you should be able to say whatever you want. I just think that what you say has ramifications, whether they're positive or negative. Sometimes it's gone the other way where I've been like, let me do my deep dive and it makes me love you even more. So absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So then I'm sure you're not deep diving on a hundred applications. No. So this is after we've gone through, we've looked at the very best topics. And then that's when I do kind of like my first skim, bring it back to the group. And we do it a little bit differently where we'll do some of them together on the call but some of it we'll do on our own and we'll bring them back and we'll have notes and we'll compare. And then from there, this is the part that I think not a lot of people think about, but from there, it's like a puzzle. It's like putting together all the right things, personality types meets topic meets teaching style or what we can find of their teaching style. 
you know, all of those things combined, it can be really hard to create a really intentional lineup. And not every conference has to do this, by the way, because some conferences, they have breakout sessions, they have keynotes, they have panels. For me, it's like my educator group is my educator group and they're in for it all. And I have to make sure that like everything flows really well together. So it is a lot of like assembling a beautiful end puzzle versus, oh yeah, these people are good and they'll probably be great. And we can just move them into whatever platform that fits their topic best. Mm, Yeah. That's helpful. Like the chemistry, the, all those types of things. How important is it to you that somebody has speaker experience and large audience? So speaker experience to me, it is, and it isn't important in the way that you might think. So it's important to me that they be able to like communicate clearly and well, but it doesn't matter to me if they've been on like a big stage or they've been a keynote before audience size no longer matters to me at all. I will tell you why. And I will be honest about this because it used to be something that was in my mind. I used to think, and when I say used to, I mean, when I launched my first retreats or workshops, um, my first workshop was like eight years ago. And I thought just like probably everybody thinks the larger the audience size, the easier ticket sales will be. And the more people will know about it and be excited to come. And so I started undervaluing my own knowledge and skill set. And I wouldn't even speak because I'd want like these bigger people to come and speak at my events or I would speak, but like not the way that I should have been. And I wasn't really like talking about all the things that they'd be learning. I was like, Hey, this person, and that just doesn't work because the internet and follower counts do not equate to real life investment and excitement and willingness to show up. So it doesn't really matter to me anymore. If I'm being hundred percent honest, that's great. I mean, I think that's helpful to get the insight. And I think just you going through your process helps to see why you're going to hear so many no's because there are so many nuances to that, like all fitting together. And I just feel like a few things I want to like draw out and highlight is like fill out the application thoroughly. If they give you space to explain, that's a signal that they want to hear all of your ideas and all your thoughts, like take up the space, right? Would you agree? Absolutely. And there's a difference between being concise and clear and vague and too short. You know, we don't want pages and pages. Yeah. But I want (laughs) I want to know, like, I want to know what the topic is and what you're going to talk about. Yeah. Do you like it to be super, super narrow or do you like it to be like, here's a couple different ways this conversation could go. Honestly, I don't have a preference of those because, and this is probably another, like maybe juicy tidbit behind the scenes. If it's really narrow, but it's like really good, but it maybe doesn't fit. I don't have a problem reaching out to that person and being like, Hey, would you actually be able to take the conversation this way? There's sometimes some back and forth on topic when I have a speaker selected, who's maybe too narrow, but they've explained it so well that I'm like, they're so knowledgeable about this. I wonder if they could take it this other way. Yeah. Cool. And do you feel like other speaker or other hosts would be similar in that? Yeah, actually. And this is from personal experience, but I did a keynote a couple of years ago where they just literally asked if I could do a completely different topic. They were like, we love everything that you put in here. We love your application. We loved all of the intentionality behind it, but like, what else could you talk on? Because we already have somebody talking on this. Mm, Yeah. Love that. A couple other things that I just pulled out that I wonder your thoughts on. One is like, obviously we all have to start somewhere. So if you haven't had any experience speaking on stages, 
you still have experience speaking. So sharing if you have a podcast, sharing if you have a YouTube, sharing videos of your content like on social so that the host doesn't have to go digging for that and that you're showing like I at least put in the effort to show you I can speak even if I haven't been on stages 100% yeah okay keep going go ahead I was just gonna say I even had a client record their talk or like the first part of their talk record it in their house and submit that recording oh cool I love that that's great yeah how helpful or important do you think having a speaker page on your website is to show that that's something that you offer credibility, even if you have very little time on stages, like what are your thoughts on how important a speaker page is? I think it's immensely important. I think it's so important that I'm actually in the process of creating a template with a designer to be able to provide that Mm -hmm. as a resource because so many of my clients and students are so lost about like how to incorporate it. I think it's important for several reasons. One, just for establishing that like, this is something that I take seriously. This is not just like something I'm doing on a whim. And it's also just a really, really, really helpful for people like me who are sifting through a lot of applications to be able to just click in one place and get all of that person's information versus my having to like piece it together based off of like 10 different links. Good call. I guess I need to go build a speaker page. That's helpful. yeah. That's good. <laughs> I'll take that feedback. Wow, this has been so helpful. Thank you for going behind the scenes and and giving us juicy details and just really helping us, but also like helping us to have the mindset of go and try and try again. And my last question for you before we get into like rapid fire questions and wrap up is: Do you think? your speaking career starts to snowball after you've gotten a few pitches, you've been on a few stages with that credibility, with those connections. Do you see that happening? If so, when does that tend to happen? Yeah, I'm of the belief that the journey looks different for everybody. But in my experience, if you're doing it consistently, so let's say you do one speaking engagement a year, that's likely not going to snowball anywhere. But if you're seeking out and sending out like you know, 10 pitches a week and you start to book engagement after engagement, then yeah, it does. It does tend to snowball. And like, I found that for me and for several of the people I work with, it's usually around like year three or four. And then what happens is that's kind of when you decide, and I don't usually talk about this part until you get there, but this is when you kind of decide like, is this what I want my primary thing to be? Because it's a lot. I mean, it's like you were talking about wedding photography. If you're a speaker, like a professional speaker, not just like a professional who speaks, but you're a professional speaker, you're on the road. You're not home. It's a lot. It's very wearing and taxing. 2019 was that for me. I think I was gone like once a month. And then post that now my max is one to two a quarter, hopefully once a quarter, because I just decided, you know, I love to do it locally. I don't have a cap, but if I'm going to travel, I've got to cap it. So just something to be aware that the snowball will likely happen and it's good to be excited about it, but it's also good to think about it before it happens. Ooh, I love that. Thank you. This is so helpful. This episode has been amazing. Thank you for showing us what's possible for taking us on the journey, giving us really tangible tips for how we can work to develop ourselves into speakers. This has been amazing. And I'd love to close out the show with some of our really fun, juicy money questions. Are you okay with that? Yeah. Okay. What has been one of the greatest moments that you're most proud of when it comes to money? 
it's hard. Oh my gosh. Okay. Mm -mm. I I love to hear what people say to this because often it's not like when they made the most money, you know, it's like, so I'm curious what you're going to say. Probably the proudest I've ever been was the very first dollar I made. Like the first time somebody paid me for doing something that I would have done for free. Why do you think that was so significant to you? Likely because when you come from education and you come from teaching, you're kind of taught from the very beginning that it's like not about the money because you won't be making any. So I think realizing that like I could do something I loved and helped other people, but also like make money and have the freedom that comes from the money. It was very eye-opening to me. Love that. What's been your biggest challenge or biggest lesson around money? Honestly, the same thing, just that I can make it like that I can have it and it's a good thing and it can be used for all the good things. I think that when you grow up without an overflow and abundance of money, and then you get into a career that teaches you that like, that's not, that's not going to happen for you. I think it can be really challenging to ask for and receive money for the things that you're doing that you feel like you shouldn't be charging for. If that makes sense. So many people are going to resonate with that. I love that. If I were to give you a hundred thousand dollars right now, what would you do with it? I would save it. I'm the worst. <laughs> Honestly, no, I love I your think, honesty. <laughs> yeah. I think I would, I would probably put most of it into like our retirement funds and things like that. Just because at this moment, the investments I want to make, I'm making, I do think I'd probably invest a good amount of it into like growth and things that I would really like to do, but I don't know. I feel like I would just save it. Cause I feel like everything I want to do, I'm doing. So love it. If you're getting real bougie, what do you splurge on? Oh, that's, that's hard. If I'm getting real bougie, I splurge on like big things like cars and equipment. And I'm not a clothes purse shoes kind of girl. I'm like a, give me a brand new car, a brand new computer or the Samsung art TV. That's overpriced and not that great, but it's beautiful. And I want it. I love it. Lately. You're so honest. I love it. Okay. People have totally fallen in love with you as you've shared on the show. Can you share, I know you have a a gift for people that they can download, that they can learn more about this crafting your education, crafting your speaking. So can you mention that? We'll put it in the show notes and where people can find you. Yeah. So I have a free ebook and it's all about getting started in education and you can find that and me at leilimadi.com and then over on Instagram at Laili underscore Imadi. Amazing. Beautiful. We'll put all that in the show notes. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Are you a creative entrepreneur looking for next level support when it comes to your money mindset and management? It's time to get on top of your numbers once and for all. Do you want to upgrade your lifestyle, make a bigger impact in the world, or gain more time back into your day? Your big dreams are all coming back to one thing, money. So I've developed a secret sauce money matrix formula to combine the power of an abundance mindset with money management tools specifically for creative entrepreneurs like you. Stop hiding from your numbers and start getting strategic. Head to www.erinbridgman.com to learn everything you need to know about my coaching programs. It's time to completely transform and change the way you view and manage money so you can show up like the wealthy woman you are meant to be. 
Apply to work with me one-on-one at www.aaronbridgman.com.